0: Welcome, everybody. Um, happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to you in the venue, uh, out in the cafe, and all who are watching us online. Um, today, as we celebrate Father's Day, I hope you can connect a little bit with the incredible uh, joy I feel to be honored and blessed to share God's Word with my son with you. It's a pretty unbelievable opportunity. <laughs> You all are very encouraging. <laughs> Proverbs fifteen twenty says, a wise son brings joy to his father. So uh, I am unbelievably joy-filled daily, super joy-filled today, because uh, most of you know Tim better than me even, uh, because he's up here every week glorifying God with his life. But you may not know that my other son, Tyler, is a a worship and teaching pastor at a church called Story City Church in Burbank, California. You can sure pray with him, but he's glorifying his life uh, to God's glory. And uh, as you're going to see, that's quite a miracle given the story you're going to hear about where I came from, and ultimately we came from as a family. So. As one of the pastors of uh, Recovering Counseling here at Big Valley Grace, in my role, I get to deal daily with the challenges and and struggles that are facing our families and culture. And today it struck Tim and I, as we have this one singular opportunity to share with you on Father's Day, that uh, it's a day we can address the root of the problems and even attack it head on with the truth of the gospel. And today, we have a day devoted to celebrating fatherhood, and as a church, we have already praised and supported you, and we will continue to. But as we look at the importance of fathers, I don't know if you've ever considered that our God, the the God of the Bible, the only God, uh, is the God who refers to himself in these family terms. God as the Father who sent his Son that we might become God's children, and that is what we are. Amen. And uh, But... uh, I think this is important that it speaks really loud and clearly how important we take these roles, especially that role of a father today. With this said, it's easy for us to recognize that we live in a world where fathers are under great attack, and so many are not even aware of, much less living out their God-designed purpose, and that is to glorify God and pass his glory down to their future generations. So today, as we recognize, we do have a cultural problem. We want to look at the problem uh, by looking at what the scriptures teach us about our scriptural fathers. But before we begin, let's talk. Um, What's up in our culture? I'm quite confident that as God looks down on America today, he sees we're not headed in the right direction. It's not overall a pretty picture. And I happen to love Greg Easterbrook's book, The Progress Paradox, where he, in my opinion, makes a very thought-provoking analysis of where we stand today as a culture. In the introduction, he proposes a hypothetical about our great-grandparents. He suggested if my great-grandparents, who lived in the year 1900, could somehow transport to meet our culture and meet my family today in 2019, they would be absolutely stunned by two particular things. First, instantly, they'd be stunned to silence at the progress we've made in humanity since their time, just the last four generations. Freedom, wealth, leisure, uh, technological advancements unimaginable to them in their day. They would say that we've reached some kind of utopia by their standards. But then they would note this thing called the progress paradox that would be simply incomprehensible to them. That being that somehow, in spite of all this amazing utopian progress, we are much, much, much more miserable and unfulfilled than they were when they lived. On our topic today, they would note that divorce is everywhere, virtually unheard of in their day. They would note that blended families are now the norm. They'd go, what's that mean, blended family? Out of wedlock births are absolutely unimaginable levels just 30 years ago, much less 120 Single mothers and single fathers everywhere. Our ancestors would not be able to explain it, nor would they believe it. But today, we can and we will. Friends, with all our attempts to press forward into greater innovation and change and more progress, which seems only to feed our pride and our thoughts of superiority as if we're somehow better than our ancestors... I've thought that way, don't know about you. It's clear that we're moving backwards with the respect to living. Our lives are not improving. We're clearly not wiser, we're clearly not happier, and we're clearly not healthier. Is there any hope for the world today? Well, make no mistake, the solutions will not come from more human advancement, wealth, or prosperity. They have not helped us. That's the paradox. We propose today that the problems are born... ...out of the removal of God and His Word, His priorities from our culture. And this is resulting in a massive breakdown of the family that God designed and cares so much about. We contend that the breakdown in our homes and culture are simply a symptom of a much deeper problem. As we continue today in our month-long series on dynamic biblical duos... ...our duo today are the two most dynamic individuals of human history... One has impacted every person in a very negative way. The other came as the only solution to the problem. Our duo is Adam and Jesus Christ. Let me tell you my story. I was raised in a post-World War II home with a mother and father who, like most of their generation, remained married their whole lives. They took me and my brother and sister to church every week, as most families of their generation did. Yet our church was a works-driven church that did not preach the gospel, so I grew up in a home where my father, my role model, did not know the Lord. And because of that, I never knew the Lord either as a child. My family, like every family, had its dysfunctions and undealt-with sin issues. All this combined with my rebellious, fun-loving nature led me to drugs in my teens, where I quickly became an addict. At 29, I got married to my wonderful wife, Susie, and we had two great boys, Tyler and Tim. But our house did not have Christ, and the family secret was that I, as a father, was a drug addict, which left me unemotionally available for my family. Then in November 1990, it all came to a head as I was arrested for my addiction and threatened with a 10-year prison sentence. I hit a turning point, my midlife crisis, my rock bottom as I found myself sitting in a jail cell in Denver, Colorado. I sat there dead, spiritually, as a proclaimed atheist. I was dead emotionally from 25 years of narcotics abuse, and that combination left me close to death physically. How did I get there? I imagine it's obvious to everyone that I, like anyone else, did not wake up one day and say, I wanna ruin my life, end up addicted to drugs and in jail. (laughs) Of course not. What was the answer? It would take me quite a while, but that day I began my journey out of the pit to the truth that Tim and I will share with you today. The scriptures give us the only adequate explanation for how, I, how, how and why I got there, as well as how we live in such a paradoxically dire time where the more we have, the more miserable we become. So how and why did it happen? This exclamation, explanation we share today is one uh, most run away from, because it puts us in a position of helplessness where we cannot help ourselves. You see, the scriptures tell us that all of our problems can ultimately be traced all the way back to the very beginning to one man, our father, Adam. Let's look at this biblical man, a man so dynamic that he is the source as my father and your father for the condition he left me and every one of us in. Let's open up our Bibles and look at Romans 5. That's where we'll be today, among other places. If you don't have a Bible, we, of course, would love to put the very Word of God into your hands after the service in the altar. But all the scriptures will be on the screen today for you to follow. Here in Romans 5, Paul is opening up the glory of our Christian salvation, saying things like, look at verse 1, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. My entire life leading up to that jail cell I had no idea what that piece was. Verse 2, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. I also had never understood what that would have meant. And verse 11, jump down a little bit. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Again, I sat there oblivious. So now look at verse 12. Here in the middle of the chapter, after all this incredibly good news... Paul turns seemingly abruptly to a scriptural argumentation, hoping to take aim and strike at the very core of just how marvelous God's free gift of salvation really is, and he does so by clearly defining the problem, my problem, your problem. Let's read. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death's spread to all men because we all have sinned. What, why in the world does Paul turn from the beauty of the gospel to bring this one man into the conversation? What does Adam have to do with us? After all, we're modern men and women, aren't we? Wiser, smarter than our ancestors. Just look at our progress. Doesn't it seem a little irrelevant for him to bring up this ancient biblical teaching all the way back about the Garden of Eden? Well, if that's your mindset, you have not understood the Christian message. Paul brings Adam into the conversation of salvation because he understood the sin disease that plagues us all. The sin disease that plagued me for the first 42 years of my life and still haunts me at times. My problem, our problem, is not that we just need more knowledge or more education or more encouragement or more motivation so that we can buck up and do what's right finally, as if this was all it would take to solve our problems. Make no mistake, this would be like a doctor treating a patient's symptoms without ever considering the underlying illness or disease. It would be foolish in the medical realm. It is infinitely foolish in the spiritual realm. And it's that foolishness that leads us into the state of individual, family, and ultimately cultural decline we find ourselves in today. So, what is the biblical cure for the sin disease that plagues us all? First, it is... Because our father, that first man, Adam, we must recognize a need. We must recognize our need for a completely new nature. That's a big concept. This is the reason God has Paul bring Adam into the conversation. He wants us to understand that our sin disease traces its origins all the way back to the very beginning. All of our problems rise from the fact that we have all inherited the same sickness from our father, Adam. Look at verse 17. Because of one man's trespass, that being Adam, death reigned through that one man. So clearly, the problem with us is that we've inherited a dead nature from our father Adam. Paul expounds this truth further in Ephesians 2. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This describes quite well why I found myself sitting in a jail cell. So, if this is what the Bible says we are by very nature, the next question to be considered is why? Why were we born dead? In our humanistic culture where everyone is in love with the idea that we are good people, this is another point where so many turn away from the gospel. They cannot accept such a statement, such brutally pessimistic statements about our inner nature. What are you talking about? We're really good people. I hear that all the time. They say, but Tim and I believe, and we've been praying that today everyone in this room will remove their their spiritual blinders and be prepared to face this truth of this message together. Why are we all born into this helpless sin condition that David wrote so well about in Psalm 51 when he wrote, surely I was sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Wow. Now that's the truth. Why is this the truth? Because Adam broke a covenant of works, which meant it was a conditional covenant. What does that mean? Well, last week's pastors Lonnie and Scott gave us a good look at what a biblical covenant was as we looked at the duo of David and Jonathan. Yet as we look at it again today, this thing called covenant, we need to admit that a covenant, an unbreakable contract, is not something that is well understood anymore. Why? We've already defined it. Because of our old nature and our father Adam. Biblically, a covenant was sealed, pretty weird, but by killing a cow and cutting it in half and laying their halves on the ground. And the two parties would walk between the two halves of the cow, thus claiming, if the covenant I make with you today is broken, I agree that I will be treated the same way we just treated this cow. In other words, it was a conditional covenant that said, I agree to a consequence if I ever break my word. On a human plane, the greatest example of a covenant in our time is the marriage covenant. At every Christian marriage, the couple makes this supposedly unbreakable agreement with each other before God and these witnesses. They do so as the God-designed covenant that is the precursor to any of us ever becoming fathers. Sadly, because of our father, Adam, and this old nature, we're doing a very poor job of following God's design and keeping our covenants today. If you're here today struggling in your family, your church is here to support you in a lot of different ways. Just let us know. But today we're looking at God's covenants. And because as believers, God is our model in all things, then God makes a covenant with us. It's true. His word is authoritative and true, and He always keeps His covenants. And as our model, He hopes that we will do the same. This first covenant was a conditional covenant because God put a condition of works on his promise. So what was the covenant and what are we talking about? It's recorded in Genesis 2. And let's read it. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For on the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. You see, God created Adam in his image, which means he was just like us, and he was made for the very person, purpose of living eternally in a very personal relationship with God. Then God made the covenant that said, I'm going to establish a framework of our relationship. And he said, Adam, you keep your part, I'll keep mine, and you will live in forever perfection relationship with the un- and union with me, your God. Sadly, we all know the story. Adam went his own way, and the dynamic truth of this choice was that having broken the conditional covenant, we've all borne the consequences of death ever since, which leads us to the second biblical diagnosis of our condition by nature, which is that because of Adam, our father, we must recognize that everyone born ever since has been born outside of a relationship with God. Sitting in that jail cell, I had zero relationship with God. And I was yet to even recognize my need. You see, separation from God is the very essence of death. Death is not to quit breathing. No, we were all born to live eternally. Death is separation from God, who is life. And as descendants of Adam, we have no hope or ability of restoring our fellowship with God any more than Adam did after he disobeyed. Adam's sin made it impossible for himself or any of his offspring including us, to ever reenter into a fellowship with God under any covenant of works ever again. Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, helpless to ever return. And as we see, the Bible teaches that because we're all the sons of our father Adam, just as Adam's sin separated him from God, so does our inherited nature bring the same consequence upon us. So we have to admit and diagnose that we all need a new nature, We also have to recognize that we are born and exist separated from God. These two truths are truths that our humanistic culture do not like. It's very unpopular and even offensive to them today. This is not new, nor should it surprise us. People have always rejected the gospel for the very reason that they do not accept this teaching Yet this teaching is the only adequate explanation for why I ever ended up in that jail cell and why we find ourselves as the world is today. Friends, it would be a very, very sad teaching for sure if this is where the story ended. But it does not end there. It may be clear that by the grace of God alone, God had a plan for me that I would finally come to understand the diagnosis and my need. And then I would hear clearly that the reason the gospel is called the gospel, meaning good news, is because, of course, it does not leave us in this condition, the condition we've inherited from our father, Adam. Tim, why don't you come up and declare what makes this gospel so glorious.
1: Thank you, Dad. It always amazes me to hear my dad tell his his story, this part of his story of the darkness in which he found himself. I was so young at the time that my dad was in the depths of his addiction that I was mostly oblivious to it. I uh, I didn't know just how deep the darkness of my family was. And so looking back, considering today just where God has brought us, and um, it, it causes me just to, to shudder to think where I'd be were it not for the grace of God and, and were it not for God getting a hold of our family. Um was there for the there but for the grace of God go I. I very well might be in a jail cell today, just like my dad found himself. But, but praise be to God for his good news, which I want to share with you today. So what, what is this gospel? What makes it so wonderfully good? And what is it that gives it such power? Paul says in Romans 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So why is this message so powerful, so dynamic, as to actually have the power to pull us out of this condition which my dad just described? Well, let's return to Romans 5.17 to try to understand a little better why the gospel is so powerful. Paul says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more, and here comes the much more of the gospel, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. I want to unpack this in in three of those phrases. With the abundance of grace we receive the free gift of righteousness we receive, and then that we reign in life. So let's consider the abundance of grace. What does it mean that we've received the abundance of grace through Jesus Christ? I would put it like this, that because of Jesus, we can be born again by God's grace. This is what is necessary. As my dad said, we need a new nature. And hopefully it's abundantly clear why we need this. Jesus made this point To a man who came to him by night, a Pharisee named Nicodemus in John 3. You can read of this encounter. And Nicodemus, most likely as a Pharisee, was a man who was was pretty reliant upon his own ability and his own power to keep God's law. The Pharisees struggled with a principle of self-righteousness, thinking that they could, in fact, be righteous by keeping God's commandments. But Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says, I perceive that, that you're, a, you're a teacher sent from God. And Jesus confronts him right where he is in his condition with this somewhat confounding statement saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus is looking right into the heart of Nicodemus and he's confronting him in his falling condition And trying to open his eyes to the fact that your self-righteousness is worthless. You need not just a better teacher. You need a savior. You need not just teaching. You need salvation. You need a new nature. And that is exactly what Jesus offers to us today. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. So why is Jesus able to do this? Why is he the one who can give us a new nature? Well, first and foundationally, we have to understand that his power to do so, what makes him so dynamic is his very nature. It's because of who he is that he's able to be our savior. You see, Jesus is unique. He is is God, fully God, and he's fully Man, this is what the scriptures declare to us. Paul in another passage where is contrasting Adam with Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15, and here's how he contrasts the two. He says the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. But the second man, that's Jesus, is from heaven. What Paul is doing is he's he's contrasting The the glory of these two beings. Jesus is glorious, infinitely more glorious than Adam was. See, Adam was created. He was formed by God out of the dust. And God breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. But Jesus is not created. He is one with the Father. He is the Word who was in the beginning with God. And who was in the beginning God. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1.3 that He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And the glorious truth that Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 15 is that He came from heaven. This is the truth of the gospel that Jesus came and took on flesh and blood. He became a man. The Word was made flesh and made His dwelling among us. John 1.14 Why did He do this? Why did Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who is divine, come and take on our human nature? Well, this leads to the second reason He's able to give us a new nature, which is why He came, the work He came to accomplish. What has Jesus done? Well, He's confirmed a new covenant between us and God. It's a covenant of grace. So Jesus can give us a new nature because He has confirmed the new covenant of grace. This covenant is different from the original covenant that God entered into with Adam, our father. You see, my dad said that was a covenant of works, which meant it was conditional on Adam's obedience. But this new covenant is not a covenant of works. It's a covenant of grace, meaning it's founded unconditionally on the promise, the word of God. How do we know this? How do we know that this new covenant is not based on our works, but based on God's grace? And his faithfulness. Well, first of all, we know it because of the actual terms of the covenant. Amazingly, some 600 years or so before the birth of Jesus, God spells out in the scriptures very plainly for us what this new covenant will be to the prophet Jeremiah. He he speaks to Jeremiah through Jeremiah and he says, This will be the new covenant I will make with my people Israel. In Jeremiah 31, he says, I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Do you notice the relationship that this covenant promotes and and produces? I will be their God and they will be my people. Just like in marriage, we enter into covenant with someone and we say, You are mine and I am yours. So in this covenant with God, God is saying, I will be yours and you will be mine. He unpacks this covenant further to the prophet Ezekiel just about a a generation or so later saying, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a living heart, and I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Can you notice here how the terms of this covenant are not dependent on us at all? There is no command involved in this covenant that God is giving to us. Notice all the I will statements. I will put my law in your hearts. I will write them on your hearts. I will be your God. I will give you a new heart. This is the unconditionality of the new covenant of grace. It's founded in God's action, what God has done. And that's what the gospel is. It's the declaration of what God has done. We also know that it's a covenant of God's grace because of the way in which it was confirmed or sealed, put into effect. How was this new covenant sealed? Jesus told us very plainly, it was with his blood. It was the offering of the Son of God in the flesh on our behalf which confirmed this new covenant of grace. He shared a meal with His disciples the night before He was betrayed in the shadow of the cross, knowing what laid ahead of Him. And in this meal, He established a new meal that we would we continue to, to participate in in remembrance of Him, the communion supper. And during this meal, He took a cup and He told His disciple, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, Luke 22, which is poured out for you. You see, the death of Jesus was necessary to confirm this covenant because death was the wages of Adam's sin and the nature that we've all inherited. He died for us. He died in our place to confirm and establish a new covenant that's not based on our works but that's based on his grace. Hebrews 2.9 says, by the grace of God, he, Jesus, tasted death for everyone. He died for everyone. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. John says in 1 John 3:8, the reason the Son of God came was to destroy the works. Of the devil. That's what he's done. His blood cleanses us from our sin. It purifies our hearts so that we can now live in a restored relationship with God, no longer separated by that barrier of our sin, but in fellowship with him. His Holy Spirit now coming to dwell within a cleansed and sanctified heart. Which leads to the next statement of Romans 5.17, which is that because of Jesus, we receive the free gift of righteousness. We receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. This is the revolutionary declaration of the gospel, which transforms our lives. Righteousness is a free gift. We do not. Indeed, we cannot earn it. It's given as a free gift. This truth, when, when Saul of Tarsus came to understand this truth, he was transformed from a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent of the church of Christ and of Christ himself into the mighty apostle Paul, a man used by God as a bondservant of Jesus Christ, a man of grace, humility, and yet such passion and fervor to make the grace of God known. Paul tells about his experience and the change in his mindset and his thinking that took place when he came to understand that righteousness wasn't something he earned, but something that God gave to him as a free gift. In Philippians 3, he gives us a brief glimpse into his autobiography. And he's confronting the idea that righteousness is based on works. So he shares what he wants, the way he once thought. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh... I have more. See, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel, God's own chosen race, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. And then notice the change. Whatever gain I had from all of that, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, garbage, refuse, dung, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. And then notice this. This is the key. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, the free gift of God's righteousness. It's it's when we come to understand that righteousness is is a gift, that the power of God's grace begins to work in our life. To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear His pardoning voice, changes a slave Into a child and duty into choice. Once we were all slaves to sin in our condition, but now we're reconciled children of God. And no longer do we obey simply because we have to or because we think somehow in our obedience we're going to earn our way into the presence of God. No, now we obey because we've been loved, because we've been chosen. And given grace, which leads us to the last of these wonderful gifts, which is that because of Jesus, we receive eternal life. We reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And as death means not merely to cease breathing for our heart to stop beating, death means a separation from God. It means being cut off from the presence of God. So on the opposite side, life means to be in his presence to be in a, a relationship with our creator eternal life means that we are brought into the presence of god jesus defined it like this he said this is eternal life in john 17:3 that they know you father the only true god and jesus christ whom you have sent do you know god as your father today through jesus christ This is the gift that's offered to you today on this Father's Day. I'll never forget the day my my earthly father offered us uh, a a wonderful Christmas present. It was our first Christmas here in Modesto. My dad had just recently come to faith in Christ. I was only eight years old, so it was Christmas morning. All I really cared about was all the, the presents under the tree. We'd unwrapped them all. I was excited to get to playing And I I don't remember a single one of those presents today. I don't know what I got for Christmas that year. But I remember this present. My dad said, I I have one more gift to give you guys today. And he stepped over to the tree. He'd written a little letter to us. And he pulled this this letter out of the branches of the tree. And he read his family these words. Susie, that's my mom. Ty and Timmy, that's what I used to be called when I was a little bit smaller. (laughs) Through the grace of God, he has allowed me to lose the desire to smoke. I will take it day by day, but through his spirit, I'm confident that I will not give in to this weakness again. I love you, Scott, Dad. Amen. How far God had brought us in just a very short period of time... My dad was just an infant in Christ at this point, but already he was bearing witness to his his family, to his children. And notice, it was through the grace of God, he was bearing witness about God's grace, not of his own effort, his own power. That spoke to me as a young child. Thank God for his wonderful grace that he continued throughout the years to lavish his grace on us as a family, he brought me to the realization that I need grace just as much as my dad needs grace. And uh, I'm grateful that uh, as we stood in need of a miracle that year, God intervened through the power of his gospel, the power of his word, and we began to realize that we, we were the miracle. I'm going to turn it over to my dad, and he's, he's going to close our time this morning. <laughs>
0: Well, by the grace of God, I have not touched a cigarette since. But let me tell you, uh, <laughs> if you only knew, <laughs> uh, he has transformed me in ways way more significant than the the ability to lose the desire to smoke. His transforming process through the acts of his righteousness imputed into me by the grace of God has done miracles. But I want to go back to that Christmas. Yes, it was uh, Christmas 1994, and it was the first real Christmas of my life and our family's life. Uh, It was the first Christmas we celebrated the truth of who Jesus was in our family. God's grace was abounding to our whole family. But uh, let me take you back exactly to the day, three months before Christmas Day, September 25th, 1994, It was on that Sunday morning that the good news of my story began. Prior to that day, I was living in the futility of my first father, Adam. I was powerless over my tendencies to do the wrong thing. Then, on that day, we'd been invited to Big Valley Grace by our new neighbors. Never doubt the power of an invite to come to church. I am forever grateful that our neighbors... Elwyn and Mildred Johnson, if you don't know him, he was here today. He's 91 today. Uh, Mildred's with the Lord. But they had invited us to come to church. And uh, that day, sitting right back there, right in that corner, I was spiritually drawn to say a prayer to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. And that day, I made him Lord of my life, no turning back. In that moment, I fully experienced the reality of what Tim talked about when. He said that Jesus said we must be born again. In that moment, I experienced firsthand what Jesus told Nicodemus later in John 3 when Nicodemus kept questioning, like, what do you mean this term born again? And Jesus told Nicodemus this. He said, Nicodemus, you should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, and you don't know where it comes from, and you don't know where it's going, but so it will be with everyone born of the Spirit of God. Friends, hear me. This is really important. That day, I simply came to church because our neighbors had invited us, and my wife said, we're going. (laughs) (laughs) I came that day, not really wanting to be here. I came that day... Certainly not wanting Jesus. To this day, I have no idea where he came from. But make no mistake, I heard the sound of his word through a message just like we've shared today. And he blew into my life. And he saved me from my sin. But remember, Jesus did not stop there. He went on to tell Nicodemus, you have no idea where my wind's gonna blow you in your life. And make no mistake, that day sitting here, not knowing or expecting anything to change in my life, who could have ever predicted where God would take me and my family over the next 25 years? Right up to this very moment where I'm receiving the most unimaginable grace of God to be preaching the Word of God to you. And I'm preaching it not only through the Scriptures, but through our family story. Because it's true. And I've also have to add that, that, remember, Tyler's a pastor too, living, and our grandkids are going to grow up with that legacy, God willing, of his grace, that his love is passed down to a thousand generations for those who love him. All this simply impossible to have foreseen or imagined, yet God is always faithful to his promises. So as we close on this Father's Day, what is the hope for the breakdown and disillusion that is taking place in our homes? What's the hope that we might turn this progress paradox around to actually become content and healthy and joy-filled people, fathers and families? Only one thing, the superabounding grace of God which reigns through righteousness, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Today, I stand as a testimony to the power of God's grace to take a powerless broken man of the old nature and redeem him and be given a very new nature that motivates me in completely ways different ways than I ever could have asked or imagined so how about you have you been born again by the very spirit of the living god does his amazing grace abound in your life and your family's life perhaps he's drawing you And ready to blow into your life today, unimaginably, you didn't know he was coming, but it's going to happen to you today, just like it happened to me 25 years ago. I can assure you there will never be a greater Father's Day, because everything on this side of death is temporal fatherhood. But today, today, you could be freed from the curse of your first father, Adam, and through a simple act of faith, not works, you meet your true Heavenly Father through his Son, Jesus Christ. By the power of the Holy Spirit that's speaking into your hearts right now. Let's pray. Lord, you're a God of miracles. It's clearly a miracle to give anybody eternal life, to free us and give us a whole new nature that changes our desires and changes the way we think and teaches us and helps us live a better life, forgives us when we sin. Lord, Thank you for your gift to me and my family that we might glorify you every day the rest of our lives. And Lord, for that person sitting here who didn't know what they were going to hear today but they heard from you, just like I heard 25 years ago. If that's you and you know it's God speaking to you through me right now, would you just in the stillness of your heart do what that pastor told me 25 years ago? Pray a prayer to the God you want to meet and say, I need you in my life. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. I need a new nature. I want my life to go better because of a relationship with you. Would you come into my life, Lord Jesus? And if you do and you will and you give me eternal life, I'll do my best to live for you and find out more about this thing that I've heard about today and just say I thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. So if you're here today and you might have prayed that prayer, um, I didn't get asked to come up front, but I'm going to ask you, Tim and I are going to be right up here. There's no greater gift you could c- to give us uh, than to come up and say, hey, I prayed that prayer. We'll hug you. We'll love you. We'll pray for you. And we'll encourage you. We won't come to your house or anything. We'll just, we'll just, <laughs> we'll just rejoice that we're going to be in heaven forever together. Um, and I hope you'll come forward and say, say hi. If you don't, uh, just know that there's a church here that wants you to be a part of us and disciple you, baptize you, and get you moving on this life of Christ that will change you in ways you could never dreamed. If you're here today and God spoke to you about something else in your life, maybe you're having a weakness with sin or something you need prayer about, we'll be up here to pray. There'll be, be pastors and ed- elders right across that hall in the altar, and we hope that you'll come forward and get prayer as well. It's Father's Day. Happy Temporal Father's Day to all of us, but may you go knowing the true Heavenly Father through His Lord Jesus, Son Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit that teaches you all about this amazing relationship. God bless you.